Welcome back. We just ordered our third round, or fourth, or who knows. Uh, this is Ryan Evans back here with Lieutenant Colonel Brian Payne and David Caston. Brian is the director of the U.S. Army's Irregular Warfare Center, and David is the chief of interagency coordination at that center. And uh, hopefully you listened to part one, which was posted on the site, where we talked about David's background and Brian's background in irregular warfare, which I think we can all agree is, is really a, not a very honest name for it. And MLR Smith, who's another contributor at War on the Rocks, has written about this in an article about we come up with these words like low-intensity operations or irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, and actually it can be very high-intensity. It's been very regular. If you look back at the conflicts we fought, we fought a lot more supposedly irregular conflicts. And of course, these are if they're not if they're regular, they're also conventional as well in, in their proper use of the term. But these sort of uh, counterinsurgency stabilization campaigns tend tend to be the norm, as reflected in David's career and Brian's as well. And um, so, we say a lot changed with 9/11, but really it was just the continuation of a trend. It seems in both these men's career careers rather. And uh, so maybe we could just talk about 9/11, where you guys were, what jobs you were doing at the time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> your comment about low intensity, if you've ever been shot at, that is high intensity. It's pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty intense. Uh, but, um, okay, so 9-11, so uh, where we were at during that time period, um, up until that point, I had been um, uh, working, um, for all intents, I've been working counter-drug operations. Um, up until 9-11, uh, the, the real... Um, you know, emphasis for the, you know, the national security strategy and, and uh, national security was it was all about the you know the, the, the counter you know the drug threat the narcotic threat to uh, uh, to the United States and you know just point to to any of those movies that were out during that time period you know the Tom Clancy books that were out during that time period uh, clear and present danger is immediately comes to mind. Um, well, and that was all about Colombian drug lords, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's that, that's what it was all <laughs> I about, about that. during during that time period. I mean, that was. I mean, we had, you know, um, you know, programs going on in Peru. We had programs going on in Colombia. You know, both, uh, uh, you know, uh, other government agencies, our other government partners, and the military. Um, you know, the whole of government approach to try and get rid of. Um, you know this this threat to our national security, which is you know the, all, all the drugs. So so that was the main thing. So uh, I'm living in in, um, in D.C. at the time, actually, uh, right off of uh, um, uh, uh, 395 and uh, King Street, and um, that's out in Alexandria. Yeah, Alexandria. Yeah, and um, you He's know, a great I just, tour guide by the way. Yeah, but, yeah I've, I've been driving <laughs> yeah, since we've been here. I've been been taking them around. Uh, my I, my wife was heading off to Honduras to participate in, a, in an exercise, a military uh, exercise down there, and uh, so I, I took her out to, to Reagan to drop her off for her six thirty flight, you know, to, to link up in, in Miami and then fly from Miami down to Honduras, and uh, it was an American Airlines flight that originated out of Washington D.C. Oh wow! So uh, normally we end up doing is you know we do all of the you know make sure that you know I, I have all of our itinerary and just because of the nature of where we're at in our life at that point, I, I just I knew I was going to take her to the airport and she was going to you know email me all the information later kind of thing, and uh, so I drop her off at Reagan, come back to our, our apartment, and um, then end up going for a run, come back you know watching the news while I'm emptying the dishwasher or something as benign as that. 
and watching the you know the, the planes uh, hit the towers and immediately after the second one hit knew that we were under attack. Um, then all the news reports were going about an unaccompanied or an unaccounted for American Airlines flight um, that was and, and this was an, kind of an erroneous report but you know we were watching it and coming right up 395 and you're like what is you know what's going on well as it turned out the the, the plane that ended up hitting uh, the Pentagon flew right over my apartment uh, while I was there and um, and right after it happened and the reports of the impact went down got my my truck tried to tried to make it to the uh, to the, the Pentagon to try and respond to it um, 395 packed both ways traffic not going anywhere all the back streets packed everybody realized what was going on so I was here in DC um, when the attacks went down and um, so like 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 everybody that was around during that time period I mean it had a real you know visceral effect on you um, in a way that you know those that experience it can understand. Um, so right after that, I I pretty much been involved in in uh, counterterrorism uh, operations since since then. Whether uh, whether as a uh, as a law enforcement officer or as an intelligence officer, um, that that's what you know my, my focus ha had been. I I'd, um, I'd spent time in, in Washington D.C. Uh, or after 9/11. Um, my wife and I uh, had the opportunity to go out overseas, so we were posted overseas, um, essentially doing the, you know, the, the same type of activity. And, uh, and then later on, came, coming back to, to Washington, D.C., uh, and in my, my, my military life, my reserve military life, um, being mobilized uh, to participate in, um, in these, you know, these you know, countering terror, you know, countering violent extremist organizations, you know, being involved in the global war on terror, both as a civilian and as a military uh, officer, and within the, the the as a military officer. So, as it you know, as it progressed over over time, uh, what I was doing in my in my military life was complementing what I was doing in my civilian life, and vice versa, and uh, really allowed for me to uh, to to get that that subject matter uh, expertise from a practitioner standpoint that I otherwise. Probably would have would have not 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 have gotten if I had been just sort of single tracked as a government right, employee right. kind of thing. So, um, so and of course working within and, and I should should say for for the listeners it was within the the, the special operations community, and um, who were uh, you know obviously during that time period, you know the 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 special operations community even from two thousand and one up until two thousand six, and then from two thousand six up until two thousand twelve those. Differences in those times with those TTPs, the way in which we viewed the That's threat. That's ta tactics, yeah, techniques, and procedures. TTPs yeah. that, that we looked at at, at going after um, these these organizations was something that um, that was never covered in doctrine. And 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 the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this up is because of the work that that we're doing now. And that there at no point over the last 12 years in my experiences of being mobilized three times. Um, being forward deployed both as a civilian and as a military officer, did I ever go back to anything that I had learned from my um, my traditional military training that was that was part of the, of, of TRADOC, the Training and Doctrine Command? Mm -hmm. All of the training that I that I ever received that was of value and of use immediately 
was all of the training that I received outside of the training in Doctrine Command. The training in Doctrine Command for me, and this is just Dave Kasten speaking, was only there to allow for me to do the professional military education I needed to do in order to get promoted to the next highest rank. It was never, in this particular context, during this, this time period in our history, ever anything that, would, that prepared me for the fight. And I think that, that, that that's, that's, uh, that's important to note because it informs the work that, uh, that we're trying to do now, and that is the, uh, the special operation forces and conventional force uh, interdependence that, that we're talking about now and that's really, really hot. Um, uh, senior leaders in the Army recognize that the, the special operations community has really, um, really sort of led the way with, with all of this, uh, you know, cutting edge new ways in which to, to approach uh, problem solving, whether it's kinetic or, or diplomatic or whether it's, you know, the village stability operations, Afghan local police, or if it's, you know, really, you know, a, a creative use of uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets that are airborne. Um, you know, there there was no doctrine that was that was describing how those was doing. So we, we, we weren't prepared institutionally, and that's yeah, something absolutely. I want to. That's something I definitely want to. We're we're definitely going to hit on a lot. Um, that's sort of the central point of this episode of the podcast, and I think that this is a good time to repeat. And we said this in the in the first part, but we'll say it again in the second part. Uh, nothing our guests say, nothing Brian or David says, is the opinion of DOD, the right. Army, anyone, Absolutely. any officials. Just Absolutely. their own opinions. Thanks for doing that again, Ryan. Um, so if it is, it's purely by accident. Yeah, <laughs> purely by accident. <laughs> purely by accident. If, if those institutions even have opinions, but um, <laughs> Brian, why don't you take us forward from 9/11, where you were, and let's uh, bring us up to speed where you went after that. Well, for me, I was at Fort Benning, Georgia. I was, I was a small group instructor, which is in Fort Benning, lovely place. Yes, <laughs> so that place where you see signs that say "tank crossing on the road." That's right. Yeah. And uh, but uh, I, I was uh, an advanced course uh, um, uh, instructor. Uh, so I had 16 uh, infantry captains uh, and sometimes a couple of special forces guys mixed in uh, talking about infantry tactics and, and preparing them to be company commanders. Um, on the morning of 9-11, uh, uh, I, was, I was preparing my classroom, waiting for the guys to show up. And I can remember the, the tactics director coming in to talk to us about something. And, and the plane, had the first plane had just flown through, uh, through, through uh, the tower. And and and, uh, and I'm watching, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing! I cannot believe this is happening. How does an airliner get off that far off track? At that point in time, it still wasn't, you know, this is a terrorist attack. Um, and uh, so the the O6 that's in charge, the the colonel, uh, comes in. And he really wants to get our attention. He's want to talk to us about something very very important to him at that point in time. And I was very very distracted by the television. And almost as he's talking, the second airline flew. The plane flew right to the other tower, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is not, this isn't an accident." You know, where you, you, that's, that's when it's clear. That's that resolu- yeah. Yeah, the, the revelation is, is this is not an accident. This is this is something else. And he's like, "Hey, turn the television set and he talk to you about this." And I was like, yeah, like you know, you gotta be kidding me, man. This is this is changing the way of the future for yeah. us right now in front of us." Um, so I was about three months out from a PCS, a, 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 you know, permit change of station. I moved up to Fort Wainwright or Fort uh, uh, um, um, Irwin NTC National Training Center, and the unique position I had in that, in that, at that point in time was is I was able to watch the the buildup for the Iraq invasion. 
because uh, they did the mi mission rehearsal exercises at Fort Irwin for that. So we had to watch a series of back-to-back -back rotations where... So this is in late 2002? Yes. Okay. Um, so late 2002, I got I got there in time to be able to watch. Uh, yeah, I, I got a couple rotations underneath the belt. One of the things that really struck me when I got to NTC is that there were no villages. There was no people anywhere on a battlefield. And we had one of our... This is a rehearsal. This is just in case... For those listeners that didn't listen to the first part, National Training Center is basically our, our big battlefield rehearsal site. Right. And there were no villages. Which there were no villages whatsoever. I mean, and, significant. As, as, in, in the lead up, you know. Besides so, of Delaware, yeah. no villages. Yeah. So 9-11 so, so takes place. I move forward to Fort Irwin. I become an observer controller at the National Training Center. And, and as you were watching, you know, the, the aftermath of 9-11, you start seeing the drum beats for we're going to Iraq, we're going to Iraq, we're going to Iraq. And I can remember having the discussions, hey, you know, how is this the right thing to do, blah, blah, blah. You know, a lot of people had different opinions, but the bottom line is we did it. Um, and the uh, and and what ended up happening is NTC became the the uh, rehearsal area for that operation. So we had back-to-back -back rotations of brigade-sized forces from first cav, you know, third ID, etc. And as we were, each of their rotations was tailor-made. The scenario was built to simulate what they were going to expect to have happen in Iraq. Um, so it was very interesting to watch the battle plan be rehearsed and then watch it on television as it actually went down and see where things diverged uh, <laughs> I cons bet. considerably at times. Uh, that we did not, we did as, as a matter of so fact. You're, so you're saying that it wasn't just TTP's operations being rehearsed at NTC, it was the entire campaign. It was the plan. It the was, invasion it was, how, was being it was rehearsed. how they were going to go do it. Wow. So, uh, I didn't know that. So uh, the uh, you know at least at least from my perspective that's what exactly what it seemed like when we were playing you know talk, crossing the Tigers crossing the Euphrates etc. Um, so it's very interesting to watch it. We did have a giant sandstorm during the rotation, really, uh, which which you know <laughs> amazingly enough we were somehow you know preconceived enough to know that that was going to take place, but uh, but uh, it was very interesting to see how things diverged. But the the key piece that had been building in my mind as we were and we'd been talking considerably among the the other observer controllers is. And this is a great place to really train in the purest form. Um, but there's no villages here. There's no people. I mean, there's we, we, we consider our range fans and the and, and the the extent of our weapon systems with regard to other forces of that are on our side, but we don't we're not constrained in any other way. I mean the ROE is fairly wide open with regard, ROE rules of engagement. Yeah, it's fairly wide open with regard to force on force play. Um, and 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 as you start to look at, you know, in the past where we've been, that wasn't the case, and where we went, it wasn't the case. So, um, from my perspective, you know, in particular, um, it just felt like we were there was a hole in the swing. We were missing something with regard to what the full operational environment was going to look like um, with regard to that. Um, and uh, and you know, as as we went into and you know the results, I think. You know, gotta speak for themselves with regard to what we expected to happen and what did happen um, was a result of uh, was a result of the, um, the 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 piece of the dynamic that we had not played with, which was mm -hmm. the population. Yeah, um, so so yeah. that, that again, that's that, that is purely my perspective. But, uh, but and, and uh, one that you had to deal with when you ended up in Kirkuk and then Saladin. Yeah. Exactly. Um, as a as a operations officer in an XO, right? Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, uh, yeah, I uh, I had the, 
again, I'm chomping at the bit as, as 9-11 takes place. I'm, I had just left command, you know, a year earlier and was not in a position to be able to deploy and actually go and, you know, carry the flag forward and, 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 and get some payback. Um, so I did this NTC road, you know, tour, got a chance to observe, learn a lot there. And then I was called on to go to CGSC, and, and while I was at CGSC, I, I, I was you know, kind of agonizing over the decision, should I stay here one more year to go to the School for Advanced Military Studies, the SAMS program, or should I get out to the unit? And, uh, as, and I, I wrestled with it for a couple weeks, and then my wife, who is usually the sound, you know, the voice of reason in my household anyway, said, well, you know, do you really think the war will be over in, 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 in 12 months? And... Uh, I said, I said, no, I really don't think it will be. And she goes, but this opportunity will be gone. So, and at that point in time, I was like, got it. I'm going to go to School of, school of Advanced Military Studies. And so I got a chance to go to the same. And that's out in Leavenworth. That's yeah. Leavenworth as well. It's a, it's a second year. It's, it's, it's everything everyone ever thought CGSU was going to be in more. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and uh, you know, it's based <laughs> on three pillars, you know, theory, uh, uh, theory history, and, and, and doctrine. And you spend a lot of time doing, you know, uh, uh, you know, looking at warfare from an operational art perspective, uh, with the, through those three prisms, um, and and that was probably hands down the best educational experience I've ever had in my entire life, and it really set me up for the following piece. Hmm. Uh, I went to uh, immediately left from there. I got to, I got sent to Twenty uh, Fifth Infantry Division. I was the G five uh, for General. That's Mixon. the plans officer. Plans officer. I was the I was the plans chief. Uh, for General Mixon, and it was during the time when we were looking at doing the surge. So I got there in 2005. We were deploying in 2006. It was the big surge. Um, so you were part of the surge. Deployment. I was part of the surge. Okay. Um, so we, we we did the we did the uh, you know the big campaign plan for the 25th Infantry Division, which ended up being 20, uh, MND North, um, uh, going to going into Iraq. And it, once uh, we got to about nine months into that job, uh, we briefed and got the CG. CG was like, okay. I'm good. I like the direction we're going with this. We've got something we can work off of. Um, we just got pulled all the all the brigades that were going to work under us in together at Fort Leavenworth. Got a chance to brief the campaign plan. Got a chance to you know interact and, and know the people the player's going to be. And the and the and the G3 at the time, a guy by the name of uh, Walt Pyatt, said, "Okay, it's time to get you to a battalion." And they kicked me down to a battalion. I went down to uh, to two seven. If I could just if I could just pause you there and ask a question. Um, yeah. So you're you're planning to be a part of the surge and you're getting ready for the surge. Absolutely. And if you look back now and you look at the narrative that is built around the surge and what the surge was and what it was intended to be, was there any inkling of that when you were planning this? I mean, it, now it's sort of painted as it's what stabilized Iraq, it's what saved the Iraq war. Yeah. Um, was was there any inkling, was there an idea that that's what it would become when you were involved in this process? Um, uh, it, Especially as a planner, you could yeah. The, the the gut feel that I had, I mean, it was never ever you know in black and white written out that this is what it's going to be. But the gut feel was is this is this is the way to change the course of the way things are headed. Okay. Um, so there was a there was a we didn't know what it was going to look like, but we knew it was going to be the way to change, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I can remember the whole time going, we're going to get. I, I just had this. I was like, we're going to get extended. We're going to get extended somehow. I, I just had this gut feeling we we're going to be extended. And so, uh, so as we planned this whole thing, I went down to a battalion, um, and 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 because of the way we were doing the structure, that's when they introduced the the the, the mid team, the, the military transition teams. 
which basically was uh, you know what we're calling now is our SFA teams. They'd have a security uh, force assistance. Yeah, very good. Uh, the uh, uh, usually it's a, a field grade officer, or a series of, 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 of junior officers, and some NCOs that are there to basically interface with a, a, a host nation battalion and try and develop their training and, and uh, planning capacity so that they can become a more effective force. Mm -hmm. Well, this is before the Army sourced those externally to a brigade. They said... So, so yeah, so, you know, what was the feeling of, <laughs> uh, of you guys during that time period where you were trying to, like, build this capacity? Well, well yeah, it was, it was funny because as a, as a planner, it was very easy to say, oh, okay, we're going to have to fill this many S, you know, the, the MTTs, um, and, and, and uh, you know, each brigade, and I can remember briefing at Leavenworth, all these brigade commanders, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to pony up this many people to fill these positions. What was the reaction? And they were really upset about it, to be honest with you. They were kind of like, hey, that's a lot of people, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> da, da, da. Well, <laughs> now, put the other hat on. Now I'm a battalion S3. I go in and they say, hey, you have to go and implement. I have to, get to, I have to go and execute the plan I helped write. Um, and it was filled these external mid teams. Well, the external mid team required that Dan Wilson, forget Battalion XO, super capable guy, and my guy that I used to lean on whenever I had issues and didn't know, yeah. he got stripped away to go to a whole different area of the battlefield, which, and we didn't get a backfill. As a singleton. As a singleton, and you didn't get a backfill, and we didn't get a backfill. Oh. So, so now it's you're left doing two jobs. Now I'm doing two jobs. Yeah, in combat, I was in Hawija, uh, uh, Iraq, which is uh, the western portion of Kirkuk. It's the Sunni portion of Kirkuk, and Kirkuk City to the east is all Kurds. And so it's the not calm per it's portion. It's the not fun part. <laughs> yeah. It's the unhappy portion yeah. of Kirkuk. It's where you're not going to buy a home. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the uh, yeah for the for, so in that period of time. The first four months, we're in constant contact. I mean, it's literally, you know, sig act, significant actions, you know, aplenty every day. And mm -hmm. in that first, in that first six months, well, actually, in the first, in about the first three months, we lost eighteen guys. Uh, um, no, and, and, so, so and, what year was this? This what is two thousand. This is two thousand uh, two thousand six. Yeah, yeah. going to two thousand seven. Um, but we lost 18 guys. Mostly and to IEDs? Mostly IEDs. Um, and uh, we had the fir very first guy happened on our PDSS. It was a his direct fire incident. He was going up in a tower. We had gone in and said, we are going to, and this was, I, I applaud the battalion commander uh, tremendously, a guy by the name of Carl Marr, which uh, for sticking to his guns on this, because we said, we're going to go in there, we're going sh to share the burden. So during the PDSS, we go downtown. PDSS. Uh, Pre-deployment uh, site survey. Yeah, that's okay. exactly what it is. It wasn't the PDSS. It's during the RIT TOA, actually. The, the it's when one place. unit leaves and the other unit comes yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, Transition yeah. of authority. Uh, we're, we're going around the battlefield, and, and the battalion commander pulls into the police station in downtown Huija. And one of our soldiers um, is climbing up into the guard tower to stand watch with one of the, the, um, the Iraqi police. And as he's going up, he gets shot uh, underneath the back of his helmet uh, through wow. his neck and kills him uh, yeah, pretty much instantaneously. So on our first week on the ground, in our plan to partner with our host nation, um, we are now faced with the challenge of, we just lost a soldier in doing that. Yeah. Is this the direction we go or not? Well, and, that, and that's one of the paradoxes that was identified in the coin manual, which was... 
either just about to or just did come out at that same period of time, right? Right about the same yeah. time. Yeah. The point paradox is you sacrifice on force protect protection Absolutely. by taking on these tasks. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and but it's it, it's it's easy to write. It's easy to read. It's easy to it's say. It's to agree. Right? Yeah. But the minute it happens, it's a it's totally different. different perspective. Yeah. And and I can remember sitting between the two shoes talking with the battalion commander, and 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 we were talking. You know, what do we? Yeah. And and so that happened. And then shortly thereafter, we had a series of other incidents with IDs at different locations. We had lost some soldiers, and it was it was do we do we change the way we're going to do business? Have we? Have we misread the situation as what the direction we're wanting to try and go and partnering with these folks is that? Have we have we misread it or not? And in our discussion it was like, no, this is the opening salvo, we're taking some shots to the face, but we gotta stick through this thing. And uh, one of the things that we did in that first rotation is is we realized that you know, we were partnered with an a, a, an Iraqi battalion, but we weren't co located with them. They were in a totally different location. Their location wasn't sustainable for them. It didn't work for them, mm -hmm. and uh, so we said, you know, we need to do is we need to get those guys moved in with us. And at that time, we were taking probably mortar or indirect fire probably once or twice a day. So we got the, the very hard to get support to get these guys moved. So we just said, okay, we're going to do it on our own. We got our, our our FSC, our forward support company that was attached to the battalion together, and said, hey, we got to get these guys moved. They had 15 shoes and and some equipment. We put together the package, went over there, helped them. We got a crane from the oil field to upload all their stuff upon, moved them to our fob. And they were ecstatic because we immediately improved their quality of life. The second thing that happened is, is <laughs> like within three days, a mortar round came in and hit on their side of the fob. Mm. <laughs> and uh, oh, luckily wow. it didn't explode. It actually was a hilarious thing. It came through the tent, crashed through the tent. As indirect fire can be hilarious yeah. at times. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it went to a mattress and got caught up in the box springs of the mattress and didn't hit anything that would actually... Just just for those who are listening without a military background, indirect fire is when they're firing your position, they don't exactly know where they're going to hit. They're yeah, exactly. With a mortar or, or some sort of rocket that isn't guided. and Right. They just want to hit something, but they don't know what. Yeah. They, it's, like, it's like a Hail Mary with the munitions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, it'll hit something. Um, but uh, so what ended up happening was is the, 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 the Iraqi guys on the FOB got kind of asked up about it. And they were like, <laughs> so they started, whoa, whoa, whoa. So they started, put, they started putting the word out, hey, hey, cut the crap, man. We live over there. Quit <laughs> shooting at us. And it dried up? And so the indirect fire started dropping off. And well, started, here's the question. So these Iraqi security forces you were dealing with, were, uh, they were Sunni. So they were, so they were fellow Sunni. They were right. not outsiders. No. No, they were right. fellow Sunni. That's interesting. And then and then second thing started happening is the IEDs along our MSRs. They hit a couple of IEDs. And all of a sudden it was like, hey, yeah. cut the crap, man. This is, these guys aren't that bad. And secondly, you're hitting us now. Okay, so stop. And so we had, from the moment that we put them on the FOB with us, which was kind of a, it was a very controversial move within the organization. The battalion commander really had a lot of pushback from some of the junior folks going, you know, I don't, I don't trust those guys, blah, 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 blah. The minute we put them on the FOB with us, we had, I'd say, almost a 50% or more reduction in direct fire on the FOB. And wow. We had, and we had a, almost a 60% reduction in IEDs on our major MSRs, uh, made spot routes. Um, and, but, and but, but that's not surprising, right? It's I not. Mean, when you look at it, you're looking, yeah, it's like... The uh, logic is there. Yeah, I grew up in this neighborhood. Okay, yeah, I mean, maybe part of the authority, you know, in this particular case, yeah, I mean, you know, part of the Army. 
but I still live in this neighborhood, or at least I live in a, in a neighborhood that's connected to this. I still know everybody here because, I mean, to use the, the, the USA context, I still went to high school with these guys. Yeah. I, I knew who those knuckleheads, yeah. th th they're launching these, these in, this indirect fire. So while it, it's, it's that context, I think that once you sort of explain it that way, like, you know, take your own neighborhood that you grew up with as an example, of course it makes sense. Yeah. Dudes, I know, who's, I know who the troublemakers are. Right. I'm going to go and tell them to knock it off. It yeah. makes sense. That's that's what I think that, and and uh, it, it a lot of this is just so very sensible, uh, and we forget how small these patches of land are and how yeah. all these guys really do know each other. Yeah. Um, yes. Sorry. Okay. Oh. Yeah. We just got checked in by one. We of the got checked staff. in. Make sure there was nothing illegal going on in here. <laughs> nothing that they saw anyway. But um, <laughs> but a lot of this is just very sensible, and we're just. We, I think at that point we had institutionally, despite the fact that as you heard in part one. Brian and Dave and a lot of other people in the military, their their experience, their military operational experience was all irregular warfare. Um, you still saw the military as this tool to kill people and break things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but now we're you're sort of just playing sensible politics on a local level, right, armed yeah. politics, without politics, any training. Which is what Clausewitz always said, as Frank Hoffman just pointed out on a great review on War on the Rocks, is that. Clausewitz always said that politics was central to war, but some American and British officers have interpreted it differently and mm -hmm. set politics in the sphere outside from war. And that's actually something I'd like to get your opinions on uh, as we move forward in your experience. Brian, your experience today, we talk about Kandahar, mm -hmm. uh, where you commanded a battalion. Right. Um, and we talk about... Uh, we talk about how politics is just such an integral part of what you were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and you have some commanders out there and some military theorists out there that says that all this corn stuff is bullshit. Excuse my language. We should just be out there doing counter-guerrilla warfare and killing the enemy. Mm -hmm. And it should be all force on force and forget this amongst the population stuff. Um, bringing your experiences over to Afghanistan where both of you worked and Kandahar in your case uh, in your case, Brian, what would you say to that? Uh, I, I, I disagree tremendously with the idea that we should forget that. That In, in reality, um, if you don't understand the population and you don't understand um, the, the politics of the situation, um, you're operating really fairly blind in your operational environment. Um, the... Uh, I, I had a very fortunate and two contrasting experiences in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I was spread over two districts. One district was Dan District, that was Panjway. In, in Dan, um, I had a, a, a very um, um, charismatic, very outgoing, very knowledgeable district governor. And he realized, and, it w and I was fortunate to follow another guy by the name of John, you know, John Paganini, who had been yeah. there beforehand. Great American. Yeah. And who, who used to be the head of the coin center. He and I have been following each other around for quite a bit, but not, haven't actually been together in any one location. Uh, but uh, I, I, by hook or crook, it's a long story, but I ended up, while I was on my pre-deployment site survey, I happened to stop into his, fa his, his Ford operating base and got a brief from his three on their campaign plan. And we were trying to build our campaign plan at the same time, although battalions technically don't have campaign plans. We still were building one. Um, the uh, the idea, though, is, is as I looked at what they were doing, I was like, that is exactly what we've been trying to, to, to capture in our, our discussions back at home. 
give me a copy of that. So I went home and gave it to the S3 and said, this is what I'm looking for, build on this, fast forward 12 months and say, this is what it's going to, this is, you know, assume success up to the point, you know, where they're, where, what they're saying, and let's build on that. We had no idea that we were actually going to follow that exact unit in that exact location at the time, but we did. And because, and because of that, we had this continuity of effort that looked exactly the same as the guy that had this left. Um, and uh, so it, it was easy to get buy-in and belief in our, our force with the district governor. Um, I, I, I and, and, and that, if I'm not mistaken, was an anomaly. Oh, because um, while we say that from, um, I, I guess, uh, from a doctrine standpoint, the battalions don't do campaign plans, that in fact was... The, the case almost universally that Absolutely. somehow, some way, the battalion commanders that were in these, you know, uh, uh, you know, remote locations, you know, these dispersed uh, locations, had to come up with a plan. How, how are we going to do this? So, you know, they do the ends, ways, and means analysis. They do mm -hmm. the, you know, the lines of effort that they're doing to get to those articulated end states and all that kind of stuff outside of what a brigade plan was and outside of what a division plan was. Because, because it's so localized. Because it's so because localized. It's so localized. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you we had never seen that before yeah. in American military history, to yeah. my knowledge, anyway. Besides maybe the Indian Wars, which I don't know really enough about to judge, but and, it could be. That's a, that's a good point, yeah. And, and if you look at each one of those individual campaign plans, you would see common elements across the board. It would, yeah. it would all be nested within the higher headquarters sure, campaign plan. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it would be, be, be tailored to that particular population, that particular set of you know, interactions that yeah. were taking place on, like, on that piece of ground. But where did you learn that? Um, for me, yeah. I was very fortunate, like I said before, is that if I had not gone to the School of Advanced Military Sam's, Studies, yeah. SAMS, yeah. Then, then, then I probably would have approached that totally different than I would have. So it wasn't the institution writ large that was saying, no. you're going to find yourself no. in a you know, completely decentralized situation. Yeah. We're going to give you these tools in order to succeed. Here they are, blah, 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 blah. No. no. It was by your own mental agility, you know, your, your cognitive flexibility yeah. that allowed for you in that environment. And, of course, you know, with the, uh, the situation that you found yourself in with John Paganini and where, you know, you were coming in. So, yeah, it, it made sense. But what about all those other brigade commanders or battalion commanders that were out there? You know, how did they... I don't, what, what's your sense of it? How did your how did your counterparts work within your your uh, your brigade? Um, did they do the same thing? I think there's a mixed bag within that yeah. piece. I, I, I'm not in their battalion, so sure. I really can't speak yeah. authoritatively okay. on what they Fair did. Fair enough. Um, I, I, I and and because we were spread so far from Zabul uh, province all the way through the western portion of of Kandahar, everyone's fight looked a little different. Yeah. So it, it'd be easy to say, well, they didn't do what I did, or I didn't do what they did, but there's a reason for that. Yeah. Um, but, I but, think that's a great point right but, there. But, but, there are, but I do believe that there were people who did not have a, they were more reactionary in what they were experiencing versus, you know, proactive in saying this is the direction yeah. we need to go and building a coalition of folks that would allow them to, mm -hmm. to see that. It, for, for our instance, you know, I, I spent the first month on our campaign plan, the first block of peace on there was, was uh, uh, assess and build a relationship. That was the task for the first 30 days. Don't tell anybody anything about what we're going to do. Don't say this is the direction. Don't because you we don't know. We have no idea. We're brand new in this country. Spend the first 30 days asking lots of questions. So I spent the first 30 days in all so, of so an infantry officer asking questions rather than guns up. 
Well, I know they don't teach that. So. Where are the bad guys? <laughs> you know? Yeah. The, wow. so, so I'm going to ask one question okay. uh, before we move on to the next. Uh, you, you Both of your tenures at, at the U.S. Army Regular Warfare Center. Um, in command of a battalion, uh, what... For our average our average listener, which I hope is someone outside the Beltway, what would what would what's the most surprising thing you think for them would be to describe the the job of battalion commander, or the most or you could say the most rewarding thing that people wouldn't expect. The most rewarding thing was it's, it's a hands down easy one. It was it was the American soldier. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you right yeah. now, uh, my oh my god, you know, uh, it, and, and my daughters aren't listening to this, but you know, part of my fervent hope is that, that uh, all four of them have four daughters that they've married an American soldier because uh, uh, that's a guy that will absolutely stand up uh, and, and all of my guys I used to repeat this all the time all the time it's like guys every single one of you had to get in a formation and say how many of you joined after 9-11 the majority of the hands are firing you guys are different than I am you joined knowing that you were going into a fight um, you join knowing you're going to go to Iraq or going to Afghanistan. Um, and their ability to adapt, their ability to on the fly be able to say, okay, this is a situation I wasn't prepared for, but I want to somehow figure out a solution to it, uh, was just amazing. And so uh, the thing that's absolutely surprised me was, was if, if you gave the soldiers an idea of the direction you needed to go, um, how, how far they could move the ball on their own, um, it, it, it went, when when they had the parameters to work in, yeah. and uh, just just amazing. It was just amazing to watch those. Guys and might I point out, from my perspective, that those very traits that you described right there are selection criteria for special operations forces. Yeah. You know the the can-do attitude, the cognitive flexibility that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, you know, being able to work in an ambiguous environment with little or no direction. Um, those are all fundamentals. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's you know the United States Special Operations Forces or you know name other you know special operations forces in the world. Those are traits that we look look for, and I think this is critical, especially as we are looking at this from the perspective of the Regular Warfare Center, where you know we're looking at at the Special Operations Forces and conventional force interdependence now. And you know we got all these 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 great observations that we've had from you know the soft community over the last 12 years that we're now trying to promulgate and to um, to capture um, and implemented by by conventional forces. Um, so it, it you know it's no surprise that all those things that you just described that you know that you admire and I admire too yeah. um, uh, is is absolutely those types of traits that the special operations community looks for as they go through things like... And, and central to what you guys are trying to accomplish. A, exactly. But, and, exactly. And I'm glad you brought up, and I, I don't mean to say something uncomfortable, I don't want to create yeah. tensions with Oh, I like uncomfortability. But, but a lot of people have described that conversation about the future of counterinsurgency, stabilization operations, security force assistance, this whole group of activities as sort of a, between the conventional forces and special operations forces yeah. at a one, as a one-sided conversation. Is that a fair way of characterizing it? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Again, this is just my perspective from where I where I sit and, and where I sit is in is in Leavenworth, Kansas, which is not the the best position to be able to observe what's going on nationally and fully army wide. It's like being in the balcony looking down on the stage. But uh, that's the first time someone's described Kansas as the balcony. But we'll just move <laughs> so, on. But 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 but, but we, we do 
able to, we're able to monitor it and watch it. What I, I would say is I wouldn't say that uh, it's it's a one side conversation. I'd say it's a it's 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 a conversation that has started with one person talking, and the other person's got to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with the yeah, with yeah, the, with, 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 yeah. the with the uh, with the the nature of the conflict we've gone on and a focus on generating forces for Afghanistan, Iraq, transition, all the things like that. I, I don't think that the, the, the full energy of, okay, what's what's it going to look like later? I think there's a lot of energy being invested in that right now, but there's not an answer yet. Yeah. Um, so we're, in our position, we're kind of caught up in the, hey, we don't know what that answer is yet, and, but it has major implications for our organization. And, you know, kind of where we're at for the next you know twelve, fifteen months or so. Uh, so we're we're going ahead and moving forward as if okay, this is the answer. This needs to take place, and you know, one of the reasons why we're here in, in D.C. now. Uh, but uh, but uh, I, I don't think it's a one-sided conversation. I think it's a uh, it's a conversation that is incomplete at this point in time. Yeah. So so maybe maybe. As, as Brian described it, one side, let's just say the, the Special Operations Forces side, is just kind of kind of laid it all out there in the conversation. They just kind of laid it all out about, you know, what they would like to do, what they would like to see. And then there's this pause, because the other side is thinking about thinking the about response. It. There you go. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, yeah. Uh, so a, a thoughtful response. Um, but, but really, at the end of the day, um, we advocate... Um, Brian and I, and, and through the center, we advocate for the conventional forces as it relates to those irregular warfare uh, issues. Right. So we we, we want to make sure that um, that in our capacity out at the, the Army's Regular Warfare uh, Center, that, that we you know have the opportunity to sort of institutionalize the best of our ability all of these things that we've learned over the last 12 years, so that we don't lose them. And, and what I mean by that is something probably as simple as, uh, and this has been part of our narrative throughout our, our engagements this week, is something as simple as uh, introducing um, the irregular warfare concepts and, and tenets into the professional military education system. So, so, like, so like you got you know, Private Kasten, you know, let's go back to, to 1985. So Private Kasten in basic training gets an hour block of instruction on hey listen you know I know you want to go around and shoot things and, and you know, shoot people and break things but you might have to deal with people that are not the people that you shoot and not you know associated with the things you want to break you have to be nice to them or you at least have to be indifferent to them but don't be mean to them all right so maybe an hour block of instruction where where you know private casting gets introduced to that but just just to play devil's advocate uh, and these aren't necessarily in my views but. If anything, having the last 10, 15 years proven that these are wars that we're bad at waging, so we yeah. just shouldn't be waging them and not investing in those capabilities. Oh, okay, but, but ask yourself, why are we bad at waging them? Mm-hmm. And so so let's do a very, very brief wave-top explanation of this from a historical perspective. 1975, we were really, really good at waging these types of wars. But then we made, as, as, a, as an institution, we made the decision that we weren't going to be conducting these type of operations again. And I'm speaking, of course, about you know, the United States Army in particular. Post-Vietnam era. Yeah, exactly. And that we weren't going to be doing those kinds of things again. We immediately pivoted to focus on things like the Folda Gap, um, you know, the Cold War, the Russians, you know, on and on. And yet what we found was, and this is, again, Wavetop's perspective and history review, we went into a Beirut 
experience that we weren't prepared for and that we didn't really understand. We went into a Grenada experience. We went into our uh, military, the Army's experience in El Salvador in Central America. And then we went into to Panama, which I, I participated in. And, you know, a lot of this sort of, you know, history informed my experiences in, in Panama. And then, then we went into the Gulf War, and while it was a 100-hour success, there was that, all of that stickiness that we talked about that happened beforehand and happened after that 100 hours. Kurdish uprising. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, then, uh, and then we went into basically Somalia. We went into, um, into Haiti. We had the Balkans that was, that was fomenting. And then we also had what was going on in Rwanda. And then we had the Balkans really sort of explode towards the end of the 90s. Meanwhile, we're doing counter-drug operations. And then we went into Iraq after, or Afghanistan after 9-11. And then in 2003, went into Iraq. So while we say that we weren't going to be doing those kinds of things anymore, we found ourselves doing those kinds of things anymore. But they were, they were shorter duration. And I think that, that from a philosophical standpoint, those short duration little uh, iterations that we had, we, we didn't have a chance to sort of internalize and understand what we just went through before we went through the, the, you know, the, the, next, next, one. the next one. <laughs> right. You know? and, that, and, that, and you sort of see the same, same dynamic now is, we're like, well, we got to pivot to Asia because of China. And then Mali happens yeah. and Syria's happening. And like, no, 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 but China, we have to focus on China. And then who knows how many other things are going to happen. But, but, but ask yourself, state this, state. where was the analysis that was done? Where was the homework that was done that informed the services to say, that is where we need to, where we need to focus? I mean, I, I don't, I'm sure it's been done. I'm, I'm, I'm positive. Not my areas of expertise. Yeah, and, yeah. and not mine at all. But, but, but here we are engaged in this, you know, three to five to 10 to 15 meter target with the, it's a regular, uh, lack of a better term, not especially thrilled to death with it, but it, you know, I think it meets our purposes here. So, you know, we're dealing with all this and then out of the, I don't want to say out of the blue, but I will say out of the blue, we get this pivot towards the Pacific and you're asking yourself, what? You know, where did this come from? Well, and also in the Pacific, how many partners are we dealing with that have uh, irregular conflicts of their own? So we have Dave Maxwell, who's a War on the Rocks contributor, who uh, was American. a commander, great American, yep. and was a commander of uh, CJ Soda Philippines, sure was, Combined yeah. Joint Special yeah. Operations Force Philippines, which is an irregular warfare-focused aspect. So... So Brian, Dave, you guys are here in D.C. and your purpose here is what? I mean, are you? Would you say it's accurate to say you're fighting the the fight to keep counterinsurgency, irregular warfare, security force assistance on the radar screen of the conventional forces? What's the purpose of your trip here? I, I think that's part of it. Uh, one of it is just to to broaden our our interaction with the community of practice, the folks who. The, either they're, they're the either the academic leaders, the folks who are thinking about these things, and and want to make sure that we don't, re, you know, repeat the cycle of history where we, whoo, glad that's over with. Let's don't do that again. Um, a, 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 as well as the folks who are going to make those decisions the, with regard to force structure, with regard to policy and development, etc. So we want to make sure we've got those contacts with those people, so we can at least understand the direction they're going. So that we can, from our position at Fort Leavenworth, where we've got interaction with the Combined Arms uh, Doctrine Directorate, um, you know, SAM, CGSC, and those places, we can help be the distribution and dissemination element at that location of what decisions will be made here. Secondly, we want to be able to take, you know, you know, we've 
our experiences and we'll be able to inject you know that and the experiences of thousands of other people that we know and say hey we do really need to make sure that we don't forget this and make sure please please remember this as we're making these making these decisions that go through yeah um, so I think there's I think there's a, it's a two-way street on this it's one is to understand what's going on here and then to help inform what's going on here at least from from a small perspective of the corner of Kansas, mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense. Um, so, Very pretty part of Kansas. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's not With great it, barbecue. It's great not barbecue. what you think of when you think of Kansas. It has yeah. trees. I got to say, when I when I was sent to I was sent to Kansas for training for the human drain job, and uh, I had real low expectations. And I got to say, I had a blast out there. I mean. Leavenworth itself isn't that exciting, but you're pretty close to Kansas City, Missouri, yeah. which is just a blast. It's a yeah. big city with a small sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah so I, I think exactly what, uh, what what Brian articulated is is is, is why we're here. But uh, but you know, you think about it from from the, the perspective of Kansas, there there is a bit of isolation, you know, or at least yeah. um, you know geographically and, and hopefully not not intellectually. And uh, so what we try and do is we try and come out here. Uh, to DC as often as possible, and, and you know, uh, from from my, my background in the, is that if, I mean, the, the vast majority of those conversations are being held here in Washington DC, and and if we aren't continuously out here and involved and participating in that conversation, uh, we don't have a say, and um, and so that that's that's one aspect of it, and then of course. Um, using the the hunter gatherer example of this, you know, we're, we're coming out here to to to, to hunt to, to to get that meat to bring it back to our camp, and our camp is out at Fort Leavenworth, and so not everybody has the opportunity out there to, to come out here and to participate in these conversations. So we're actually collecting, you know, or gathering that that you know hunting that meat uh, in order to take it back to to Fort Leavenworth to inform our conversation so that we're smart as we move forward with uh, you know any of the initiatives that, that we're trying to do. And speaking of which, those two initiatives that, that we're that we're mostly focused on in the center right now is um, security sector assistance, which is uh, PDD twenty eight or thirty eight? Twenty three. Okay. I've been Presidential Directive. Yeah, presidential which is all about, you know, building this this capacity with the State Department in the lead, you know, so that we don't have to go to these conflicts. So we're not the ones doing the big footprint, but supplying the yeah, capabilities yeah. and training to yeah, partnered exactly. countries. Exactly, and and from our perspective, it would be the military providing those, uh, you know, that assistance within the the security uh, part of whatever that that uh, presidential decision directive. So. Uh, that's where one of our main efforts is, and the other one is that uh, the Special Operation Forces and Conventional Forces uh, Interdependence. Yeah, yeah. And um, so th those are the two main thrusts that we're doing, and we've got a lot of really exciting uh, initiatives that we're working uh, on top of those. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're working with um, um, uh, several of the, the think tanks, yours included, um, uh, the National Interest, as well as uh, the New America, the Center for, or, yeah. New the, America Foundation. Yeah, the yeah. New America Foundation. Um, but we're also partnering with Rand, uh, which I think is also really important. They got so, some great people there. They got some phenomenal people there that have some uh, some recent relevant experience uh, complemented uh, by their academic credentials, and I think that that's always that's always a plus. And then add in the security clearance, and you got yeah. you know the, the, well, you know, the I, lethal you know. I also have to make a very parochial comment: is that uh, Dave 
myself and Ben Carnival over at Rand yeah. are all King's College London students. Yes. So we got that brotherhood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> KCL rules. I, I just want to... With a potential in the room. With a potential. We're trying to recruit yeah, Brian, Brian into our cult. To, to do his um, cult. <laughs> but I got, I got one, last, one last issue and then we got to end it because um, we're a little over time. But... Uh, FM-324, Field yeah. Manual 324, the counterinsurgency manual, uh, I think the most controversial military publication <laughs> read. of the last <laughs> <Great> 50 <read. laughs> years at least, if not longer. Uh, it, is, is it, it, has just, uh, it has been the topic of a Daily Show segment. It yeah, has been absolutely. published by the University of Chicago Press. Yeah. It, uh, it has been declared the greatest thing since sliced bread and the worst thing since Stalin, by depending <laughs> on who you talk to. So you you guys are really sort of in charge of that in a lot of ways. Yeah. What is the future of that manual, and what is what is does it matter still, and what does it mean? That, that, well, I, I'll, I'll hit it real quick, and okay. then I'll turn it over to you. Right. Uh, my experience with it is that I, when I arrived at the center, one of the first things that the, the, the director told me is, is hey, I, I want this manual completed. It had been in revision for a while. I need it done. So we got a chance to get a consortium of the, you know, the United States Marine Corps and Army authors and a few other folks from the academic world to put the nails in the coffin to revise it. The big issue wasn't necessarily that this was a, and a lot of people say, you know, it's a, it's a challenging task. It's almost like, a, let's go, let's do a revision of the Bible uh, based on the 2006 <laughs> yeah. edition. But, you know, most people would agree that the, the 2006 edition was really focused on, on having to transmit how we are going to do operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was very, very specific. Um, there was a lot of good concepts that would go across the board, but there was a lot of specificity as well. So what the revision was wasn't to okay that that book's no good anymore. It was really more of a okay let's let's take some of the stuff that was specific out and make it more uh, applicable to the types of conflicts that we might encounter in the future. And, and there were four aspects that we really looked at. One of them was that we had to we had to provide a greater strategic context because this manual, the one that's being written right now, is you know, the one that is out for staffing, service staffing between the Marine Corps and the Army and the academic community right now, um, uh, was uh, was written really at the brigade and below level for the most part. That is the audience that we're trying to target with this manual. Um, one was provide a strategic context. The first chip, the first section of the manual was really focused on the strategic context, introducing the idea of whole of government. Here's the kind of the, uh, the, 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 the range of operations that you might be called upon to do in that. The second one was to talk about uh, um, operational approaches that were broader than shape, clear, hold, build, uh, transition, which was very rack specific. And you, some people would argue that's the only way to do it, but there's other people who say there's other ways to do it. So we wanted to pull other ways in to do it to give an option, a range of menu. Uh, a menu for folks to select from as they, as they put together. David Uckle, I just want to interject. David Uckle is a friend of uh, War on the Rocks, wrote a great uh, paper for, for RAND, actually, the RAND Insurgency Board, on the concept of clear hold build that I commend to our readers. But sorry, go on, Brian. Cool. And then the, the second piece, of, or the, the one of the other pieces was, is we really need to work on the transitions um, and, and assessments aspect. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will talk about transitions. That, you know, there's big T, little t transitions. You know, what is it? about transitions, what's in coin uh, or a counterinsurgency situation, how is transition different in that environment than it is in maybe a, a, you know, a direct, you know, decisive action where there's a clear passage of lines and a handover of responsibility to someone else. Um, so that was kind of the aspects of what we were trying to look at at 324. Um, it, it's a manual that was written by, like I said, a consortium of the United States Marine Corps. It's a joint publications manual. It's, a, it's you know, two services working on it. So anytime you have a uh, 
you're trying to achieve consensus, there's going to be a degree of give and take. So there's some things in the manual that we would probably would have done differently if we were writing a purely Army manual. If the Marine Corps writing a purely Marine Corps manual, we'd probably say a couple things differently. But it's the things that both services can agree and say. This I'm is kind glad of you guys were able to stay together on that. So yeah, it was it it, it took a little bit of work. <laughs> it took a little bit of work. <laughs> yeah, but, I know. And you know. But we were. But we were able. But we were able to pull it off. And, uh, yeah. and at least as far as. And that's the process. good news story right there is is being able to pull it off like that. Um, you know, uh, Brian's description of it I think is um, he. He has the, the, the benefit of the last year of, of, of dealing with it, whereas, as you know, I was you know, mobilized on active duty for the last year, so I, I, I wasn't involved in, in a lot of the stuff other than the initial um, uh, writing of the portions for the interagency part of it and also the, the threat. So anything in that draft that dealt with the threat and also with the interagency. The gym stuff. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I had a hand in that. Was I the right guy to, to, to write that in the draft? I don't think so, but I was the oh, guy. Oh, no, I think you don't give well, yourself enough credit. You, you speak all the languages of the different agencies. Well, I, I appreciate that, but, but I really, I mean, I, I, it's there's not a lot of people in DOD that also speak State Department that also speak you well, know, all these other. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think um, there was a lot of drama. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that. There was a lot of drama leading up to it because I think, th I think that what had happened, and, and this is really, I think, material for, you know, a, a, an HBO miniseries, um, <laughs> is because uh, it wouldn't play on any other station. It had to be HBO. But, uh, but all of the personalities that, that came, and you saw them. You saw them when we did the revision conference. Petraeus came and spoke. Yeah, Petraeus and... came in and spoke, and, uh, we, you know, we had... You know some of the you know great thought leaders in academia. We had great practitioners from all over. You know the government, military, and and other government agencies all participate in this revision con uh, uh, um, conference. And uh, and you know there was this energy. There was this really amazing energy that was out there because we really felt that we were collaborating on something. We were going to make it. You know. We were, we were going to make this manual, this revision manual, reflect everything that we had observed since 2006 when the first one came out. And there was this huge expectation, and we even talked about it internally to the, to the center, and that is, hey, you know, this is a, this is a, a public relations issue. Absolutely. There is going to be a lot of response out there if we get this wrong. Right. Because they're thinking, okay, well, we'll, we'll think about how, you know, uh, how it was received in 2006. I mean, you mentioned, you know, The Daily Show, you know, novel, portray. I mean, everybody that uh, that was associated with this, to a large extent, has been on The Daily Show. <laughs> we know what, what it, you know, I don't think Con Crane has yet. No, Con maybe Crane, he will. Maybe next time. <laughs> oh, you know, or Michelle. I don't know if Michelle... Well, I'm kind um, of hoping for it. I'm hoping for it. Con Crane would be great. I yeah. just want to say Con, on the record, yeah. Con Crane would be great on The Daily Show. Yeah. But uh, but there was all of this you know the the backstory to it, and uh, and so 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 here we are at that you know the revision conference uh, where I lead the story um, is wow there's a lot of energy here this is going to be phenomenal uh, I'm leaving for a year and um, so so then Brian you know picks it up and and of course it's it's got that uh, that that very very um, doctrinal very analytical look at it now 
So you know, all of the stuff that, that had been done has now been turned over to the, um, we call them Tradocians. Yeah, Tradoc. Yeah, yeah the, the people in Tradoc that really speak doctrine and can you know, translate you know, all of this experience into this document. So training, I, I, training and doctrine. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I've yet to see it. I, I've yet to see the one that, uh, the, the version that's, that's gone out for the services for staffing. Um, but uh, but I'm, I'm, really, I'm really excited about, about looking into it, and I think it's going to be a, a big deal. I, I have seen it. Uh, I, I will say that uh, there will be people out there who are going to say there's there's one more thing that should be added to yeah. it, and there's always one more thing. If it was the complete book of everything you needed to know before you went to counter insurgency, the book would be too big and no one would read it. Um, so it, we've tried to distill it down to those those very concepts that really, really, you know, think will transcend you know any conflict that goes forward. Um, but uh, but like I said, it's out for service staffing and academic staffing right now, and we are expecting and, and really hoping for the big red pen to come in and say, hey, you have missed this, or we really like that. And it'll be published by? Uh, the, the template, it, it should be published by, by December of, of 2014. Right. For... You know, of 2014. Of 2014. Oh, so we still got another year and a half Let's to see. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 2014 at the very latest. Okay. At All the right. very latest. So, um, can I ask you one more question? Yeah. You're a Texan. I am. Why should I not mess with Texas? Why should you not mess uh, with that Texas? That is a great, great question. I've always wondered. I just, I, yeah. as a Californian, I'm just asking, why should I not Your mess Cal with Texas? Are you so serious? Cal. As a Californian, as you're a Cal asking a <laughs> Texan. Well, yeah. Instead of asking me, why don't you ask the hundred, or I'd say thousands of Californians who've seen the light and left California and gone to Texas in the last three or four years. Uh, I just want the record to show that Brian is unable to answer the question <laughs> of why I should not mess with Texas. Yeah. And uh, But seriously, I just want to thank Brian and Dave for coming on. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, and, awesome. uh, yeah, hope you guys can come on again sometime. Oh, Bring great. us. Well, I'd, I'd love to do it. And uh, I think we should probably recap by, um, by talking to the audience about what we're drinking, right? Uh, we were already, we already spoke about <laughs> well, that, but let's do it again. Actually, what I want to tell for the folks who are in Texas who don't, who, <laughs> now you've had a chance to think about who, it. Who grew, who, grew, who, grew up, who grew up with me, I, I am sitting in what might be one of the nicest rooms I have seen ever, ever, ever in my yeah. life. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's very reminiscent of a, of a hardwood um, a decor yeah. library. Uh, with some very nice volumes on the wall. That's what my den looks like. Uh, we're here quiet. at the we're here at the Jefferson Hotel in the cabinet room, which really you, you couldn't do any better for something like this. And there's actually a lot of Native Americans, Americans on the wall that might have been insurgents themselves at one point. Great observation. Yeah. Um, great but it's a beautiful room, the cabinet room. I highly recommend it. It's Absolutely. a great place to have a classy Indeed. drink and a classy yeah. conversation. So speaking of classy drinks, what were you well, drinking? Classy drink. I was drinking some Woodford Reserve, which is one of my. One of my favorite birds. Yeah, 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 really excellent. Um, might I recommend Bowman Brothers, which is a Virginia bourbon. Um, I am drinking a McAllen's, a uh, 12-year-old scotch, which is absolutely glorious. Yeah. Brian, what are you drinking? I am drinking a Flying Dog Amber Ale. So Flying Dog. I, I, st Flying I, st dog. I stuck with the Amber Ale. Uh, I, for the official record, my favorite beer of all time and forever will be is Shiner Bach, made in Shiner, Texas. <laughs> Texas. Shiner, Texas. But, but this looks similar in it's color similar. and taste. It's similar. It's all right. You can do. Well, thanks again. This was a lot of fun, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody.